Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, he's one of the most successful Canadian country artists of this century with 26 Canadian Country Music Awards, amongst others. No less, Gord Bamford is using his good fortune now to give back, hitting venues big and small right across Canada to help good causes raise money. And he joins me to tell me all about his Canadian Dirt Tour. It lives in the depths of the ocean, the deepest of any octopus, and the Dumbo octopus is rarely seen, but an expedition searching an underwater mountain range off the coast of Hawaii has captured one in all its semi-translucent glory. Two members of that expedition team join me from the high seas to tell me all about it. Journalist and author David Mosscroft is with me to talk about the Prime Minister's apology on behalf of Parliament today for the invitation and celebration of a veteran who had fought with the Nazis in the Second World War to Vladimir Zelensky's address to Parliament last week, as well as the downward spiral in Canada-India relations. Can it be fixed? And much more. But first, Google has a birthday today. It turns all of 25, created back in September of 1998. We look at the incredible impact that the search engine has had on the internet and so much more, how big the company, the parent company now Alphabet, has gotten in the past quarter century and why it now finds itself in the crosshairs of regulators and lawmakers. You may have noticed if you were on Google today that the search engine engine turned 25. It was celebrating itself, young perhaps for a product and a company that has had such a deep impact on the way we find information, communicate, get exposed to advertising, particularly, by the way, and so much more. It was back on this day in 1998 uh, that Google Search was first launched, I believe, the brainchild of two doctoral students in Stanford University's computer science program, Larry Page and Sergey Brin. You may know this story. It's the usual, you know, they started it, they rented a garage story, the one that every tech story seems to originate from. Uh, it was originally called, the research project, I think, was originally called Backrub. And I don't know why. It eventually became Google, a name inspired by a Google, a mathematical term that represents a very large number. I had to look that up. I'm not a mathematician. Um, according to the history of the search engine, Page had explored the mathematical mathematical intricacies of the World Wide Web's link structure back then and came up with an algorithm that would soon uh, allow it, in many ways, to blow away its competitors. All that, again, from a rented garage in Menlo Park, California. Uh, and since then, of course, it has become this just giant thing. YouTube, Android, Gmail, Google Maps, you name it. There's so much more to it. Uh, perhaps its greatest innovation, though, was how it continues to dominate online advertising. That's, in fact, as one expert put it, it isn't really a search engine. It's an advertising delivery platform for which, you know, if there's 5.8 billion Google searches every day, that is a large and captive audience if there ever was one. But its domination at 25 is under threat. Regulators are looking to rein it in. It faces a lot of new competition in areas such as artificial intelligence. So how should we look at Google at the still tender age of 25? And what could the next quarter century look like, assuming it makes it to 50? You know what happens in the tech world. To help us with all this is tech analyst and journalist Carmi Levy. Uh, Carmi, thanks so much. It's so great to be here, Ben. Thanks for having me on. Indeed, 25. I mean, it's, it's, it is kind of a big day. I think when I think back to even the first times I used Google, I think I, I switched over pretty quickly. I mean, I've been using all the other ones in the past. And I think I, I sort of started using Google loyally fairly, fairly quick on because it was good. It really was. I mean, I, I, I still remember that first time that I used it because you're right. The other one, Alta Vista, Ask Jeeves, Infoseek, Lycos, even Yahoo, 
uh, they were, let's face it, they were lousy. They, they, you know, they, they looked like Google, right? They had, it was a search box. You typed in some terms, you hit the search button, and hopefully you got back some links that were relevant. But that was the thing. They, they, they were terrible at finding things that you really wanted to find. And they weren't consistent from one experience to the next. Whereas with Google, uh, it, was al- it was almost like the thing read my mind that I remember stopping after I used it for the first time going, oh, something changed here. This is different. It, it's eerily precise. And the more I use it, the more I realize that it really was on a whole other level that the underlying technology, we don't really see anything. Google, of course, the, the interface is incredibly simple, always has been, probably always will be. But what's going on there, underneath the surface is incredibly complex uh, and was radically different at the time from anything that had come before. And, and it really transformed the way we use the Internet. We used to buy books with lists of web pages on them because finding interesting stuff was really hard. Yahoo was the dominant sort of player in locating information because it was based on an index, which really didn't scale very well. And quite frankly, it was very hard to find things the bigger the Internet got. Google solved that. Just type in your, your terms and you will always be able to find the resources you need. It was an absolute revolution then and, and quite amazingly because in, in tech life, it was, it was interesting. Like, it feels like yesterday, but in tech terms, 25 years is a really long time. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like, it's like, like, a, like a millennia. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, yeah. It, it's, it's amazing. I think it really does show that they've continued to evolve the technology. And even as other companies have thrown everything they can at it, they've still managed to stay so far ahead that they're almost in their own zip code. How is it that was it was able to scale and to grow the way it did? Because even a great product sometimes never makes it off off the ground. And it was competing as a non as an unknown against a lot of, as you mentioned, Yahoo and ex- Internet, you know, Net Explorer and so on. Some pretty big names that people had gotten used to using. I think really the key was it's almost like the you know the eleven secret herbs and spices at KFC. Uh, you know, G- Google's secret is its algorithm. It's the mathematics that power it. It's the it's the way that it used uh, a technology or a methodology called page rank to rank pages to use different criteria to determine which ones were legit, which ones were not. How to how to prioritize one over the other and sort of make sure that it showed up at the upper range of a search result list. And there was a heck of a lot of math, but it really was uh, the kind of math and the kind of application of math that had never been seen before in the Internet. I think it turned uh, that, you know, those initial few years of the commercial Internet on its ear because it was something that, quite frankly, I think any other search engine, they literally were not doing. Um, and it was all based on, you know, the, the, the indexing, the spidering that was happening behind the scenes. Google was able to figure that out and to deliver it at scale that no one else could come close to. They also innovated at their back-end. Google data centers right from the beginning were incredibly innovative. The company was designing its own hardware to make it simple, uh, redundant, robust, uh, incredibly energy efficient, and they were building their own data centers, whereas everyone else was trying to contract it from someone else. So they rolled up their sleeves, they did things differently, and they solved problems on their own instead of waiting for someone else to. And I think that gave them such a huge lead uh, that it was almost impossible for anyone else to catch up. And indeed, here we are 25 years later, no one has. Yeah. And then they began sort of hoovering up other companies. Like, you know, they, they decided we aren't just going to be a search engine. We're going to grow into something bigger. And that in of itself, I think, was, I mean, now that we look back at it, in hindsight, it all seems very natural to have done. But at the time, they were like, wait a second, you're just a search engine. Why are you buying up this other stuff? 
Yeah, and and I, it's interesting. I, you know, two of those deals uh, really kind of struck me as odd. One was in 2005 when they bought this little company called Android. And, you know, at the time, we all used flip phones. Smartphones were still in the future. We were still two years out from the iPhone. And the Android operating system wouldn't be released for two years. And it almost seemed like, a well, why would, why would Google be interested in a, in a, you know, a phone platform? Uh, and then they bought YouTube the, a year later, in 2006, a year after it was founded. And I think, you know, I, I think that's also part of the company's success is that it realized that it couldn't rely on a desktop-based search engine uh, forever. In other words, that core technology would need to evolve and the future was not desktop computers. The future was mobile technologies. The future wasn't a static web. The future was a multimedia web that was that was driven by audio and video. Uh, and so these these acquisitions, which at the time really got the company a lot of criticism because a lot of people are like, why are they diverting their attention? It's just a distraction. In the end, it was incredibly prescient because the company recognized the way we use technology is going to evolve. And kind of like the way, the way Wayne Gretzky was always skating toward the, you know, where the position on the ice, where the play was going to be, not where the play was. That's kind of what Google was doing with these acquisitions was they were looking years ahead saying, this is how we're all going to be using technology then. We want to make sure that we own those platforms when that need develops, and we're going to make sure that we're positioned for it. And that's exactly how it played out. Right. And their ability to monetize it, too. I mean, just the ad aspect of it, which would have seemed, again, kind of, you know, a bit odd if you were on Ask Jeeves, for instance, in the late 90s. That, too, I mean, ended up being their bread and butter, really, in many ways. I mean, that's where the money is. Indeed. I think that's probably even the bigger story than the search engine itself. It's one thing to build the world's best search engine. But if you can't use it to generate revenue, what's the point? And I think at the time, if you look at when Google was founded in 1998, it was early in the commercial Internet. A lot of people were trying different things. The web was a very different place than it is now. Pages were static. We didn't really have services. We just went to pages and they linked to each other. They didn't really do much beyond just display text. Uh, and, and, and certainly there was no business model on top of it. Remember when the dot-com bubble blew up in, in 2000 and 2001 because nobody was making any money. Along comes Google, and they launch AdWords in 2000 uh, in the middle of this carnage of, of the web imploding. Uh, and they figured out also, not only did they figure out how to build a search engine that was so good that we just couldn't stop using it, but then they figured out how to convert all of that activity into revenue, serve up ads against the activity collect a whole bunch of data to personalize the experience so that you can charge advertisers even more because you're only serving up ads to people who are interested in your things. And it was a remarkable transformation. And of course, AdWords, which eventually became Google Ads, became the engine that drove Google's growth. And indeed, that was the template for the internet that persists to this day. So, you know, they invented a great search engine, figured out how to make money at it, and the rest, as they say, is history. Carmen, you were saying earlier, of course, 25 years is a long time in the tech world. It's sort of fended off all competitors. But, wow, you look at, you look at what's coming up, uh, and you look what's already here with AI and so on, and it feels like Google may have some competition coming up, and, and trying to hold its spot is going to be tough. Yeah, the world around Google is definitely changing, probably to a greater degree now than it ever has in the company's history. Um, essentially, what's happening is artificial intelligence is very rapidly rewriting the rules of the tech industry. Uh, of course, uh, OpenAI released ChatGPT late last year, the chatbot, uh, to the public. And that caused 
kind of a firestorm. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, millions of people, after years of AI being something on the horizon, something that existed only in, in a lab, well, now you could open it up and use it yourself, and you could play with it, and you could try different things with it. And it absolutely lit a fire. Suddenly, AI became the definitive technology story of the year and beyond. Uh, and as it turns out, uh, AI can do some things uh, as well as or approaching as well as uh, conventional search technology, which, of course, means Google has the most to lose from the rise of AI. AI risks undercutting all that Google has built, that 90 percent search market share, that, you know, couple hundred billion dollars a year in, in advertising based revenue. All of that is under direct and mortal threat from AI. And the company is almost as soon as ChatGPT went public, they announced what's called the Code Red, basically canceled any non-essential projects, uh, revamped, their, restructured the entire company so that everybody pretty much was working on AI-centric projects. Basically, this is an emergency. It's an all-hands-on-deck situation. We need to pivot to make sure that we're ready for the oncoming and upcoming AI storm. Uh, and so they've released Google Bard, which is a competitor uh, to uh, OpenAI's chatbot to ChatGPT. They've, uh, in, in, they've released a bunch of AI tools as part of their core products. So Google Docs has AI smarts. Google Photos has more AI smarts. Google Maps has AI smarts. And we're going to see more and more of that integration. Uh, and basically, there is this massive, it's almost like a superpower AI arms race between Google and Microsoft and Amazon and Anthropic and, and, uh, and Apple and pretty much every other, and Meta and pretty much every other major tech giant. And essentially, they all want to be the first ones to get to that sort of AI finish line. Uh, and as it turns out, Google, because it is the one that dominates search, uh, it is the one that has the most to lose. Yeah, and I guess everyone wants a piece of what Google has in terms of advertising revenue as well. You think sometimes of the old blockbuster analogy, right? That you know that it, standing still sometimes can be can be a death knell. I mean, this is not yeah. to compare a Google a Alphabet to to blockbuster, but uh, you know, everyone there's only so much revenue out there. Everyone wants a piece of it, and Google has so much of it that you can only imagine that a lot of companies are looking to take it down. It seems well positioned, though. I mean, at least at 25, it seems well positioned uh, because of its brand recognition to be able. Able to catch up or at least maintain uh, its market dominance, but you never do know. Exactly. There's, there's never a guarantee. And I think your, your mentioning of Blockbuster is actually a really great example because Blockbuster is the perfect example of a company that utterly dominated its space and then was eventually outflanked by very agile competitors who didn't compete with it directly, but used, you know, were, were strong in technologies that essentially rendered Blockbuster's model obsolete. And so you know, the lesson here and sort of what I'm seeing in Google that I did not see in Blockbuster is that Blockbuster kind of laughed at the upstarts. Basically, when Netflix came knocking at their door, they laughed them out of the building, you know, refused an offer to buy them even. Uh, rather famously, and of course, ended up paying the price. Google, on the other hand, recognizes the mortal threat, understands that uh, it could potentially be killed, not by a company that introduces a better search engine, by, but by a company that introduces probably something powered by AI that renders search engines obsolete, renders all of those those tools, those capabilities that are built into its web services, uh, no longer usable, no longer best of breed. And so at the very least, Google has 
you know, essentially thrown massive amounts of resources into this pivot that, had, you know, is, is taking it seriously, knows that it's going to be a very different company uh, when all is said and done. And it's perfectly OK with that. The closest analogy I can draw here is Microsoft as well, as the world pivoted away from from operating systems uh, and, and office products. Uh, it essentially pivoted into the cloud, and it's done really even better in that world than it has in its old one. So you can teach an old dog new tricks. Microsoft pulled it off. Google hopes it can pull it off. They're certainly pulling on all the right levers. Uh, and companies like Blockbuster, unfortunately, uh, waited until it was too late, and we don't talk about them anymore. We don't, except nostalgically, adapt or die, right? <laughs> Carmi, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Great thing, your event. Thank you. Today, the Department of Justice, joined by eight states, filed a civil antitrust lawsuit in the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia against Google. We alleged that Google has used anti-competitive, exclusionary, and unlawful conduct to eliminate or severely diminish any threat to its dominance over digital advertising technologies. That was Merrick Garland, the U.S. Attorney General, uh, earlier this year in January, announcing that the U.S. Justice Department had filed an antitrust lawsuit against Google over what it calls anti-competitive practices, as you heard there, particularly relating to its dominance over digital advertising technologies. As again, as one expert put it, uh, Google isn't really a search engine. It's an advertising platform that we all watch when you Google, of course. Um, we're celebrating or we're marking 25 years today. Google turns 25 today. I think it's hard to overstate how much of an impact Google has had on the way we use the internet. And in, in connection in, to that, the, the way we do just about everything. I mean, Google has been this incredibly transformative uh, platform over the last quarter century. It's hard to imagine uh, what it was like before it and all the bad search engines that we had before that and just how much it is. Uh, and not only that, but the company itself is also growing because of it, because of its success, obviously, and the way that it does business. Um, it has come into the sites of more than a few governments and regulatory bodies, not least of which is the European Union, who have been um, fairly aggressive when it comes to what they think is monopolistic uh, tendencies by Google. And this antitrust case that Merrick Garland was just talking about actually opened two weeks ago yesterday in a Washington courtroom. Uh, one report called it a months-long trial that has the potential to subdue one of Silicon Valley's most powerful juggernauts. It is the fourth largest company in the world by market capitalization, no so again, as it turns 25, it's not just celebrating. There's also a lot of scrutiny on it today. You may have noticed on the Google Doodle today that it's celebrating its 25th birthday. Um, but it's focusing on some of the deals it's made with other companies over the past two decades, uh, saying that Google illegally spent billions of dollars paying off Samsung and Apple to prevent anyone else from gaining a foothold in the market for online search. It also says that, I mean, Google argues obviously, that it provides a better service so that people choose it because it's better, not because it's, you have to. Um, whether or not it's set as the default browser on a mobile phone, if there was a better one, maybe you just go find it, right? Um, but the true focus of the trial in many ways is just like the one that they're, uh, just like the Federal Trade Commission's coming trial of Facebook's parent company, Meta, is really on monopolization. It's about the future, not what they've done in the past. It's kind of about the future because the verdict here could really shape the way that Google grows from here. I mean, if they, they order the company to be broken up at all, that really could put it at a disadvantage as 
Carmi Levy was mentioning before, as it faces all these new challengers in uh, the AI space, for instance. So joining me with more on this now, as we look at Google at 25 and the huge impact that it has and what might lie ahead is Brett Caraway. He's an associate professor in the Institute of Communication, Culture, Information, and Technology at the University of Toronto. Brett, thank you. Happy to be here. 25 years. Uh, it, uh, it feels like Google in some ways, I, I mean, I remember a time before it existed, especially in journalism, it was certainly um, more challenging, but, um, but it's quite the anniversary. It has changed so much about how we do business and how we do things over the past quarter century. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember the old search engines too, Yahoo, Excite, AltaVista, Dogpile. Um, there were plenty of choices before. Ask before Jeeves. I remember Ask yeah. Jeeves. Oh, was my that, goodness. Yes. That was that yeah. one. That was that one. Yes. Yeah, I forgot um, about that. Yep. Yeah. But here we are in the quarter, you know, at 25 years, uh, and we've seen this in recent times, there's been a real different lens focused on Alphabet, uh, Google specifically, mm-hmm. both from regulators and governments. What's been going on? What's the, What's the problem? Well, there's, I think, a problem with how vertically integrated Google has become over the years. Uh, When Google first started way back in, I guess it was 1996, um, the founders were actually kind of uh, interested in sort of excluding commercial results in their search returns. So they were really trying to differentiate differentiate themselves from another search engine at the time that was called GoTo, wherein people just literally paid to have their content elevated within search returns. And Google mm-hmm. said, this is not a good business model. So they um, developed something called the page rank algorithm, which was sort of the glory days of Google. So you would type in um, some search query and the results that were returned to you were sort of based on a peer review system wherein the websites that came up had other websites linking into them. And the more incoming links those websites had, the more it was taken as a signal of um, this is a good source, it's a valuable source, and there's some authority here. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the internet is just uh, a wash in garbage. uh, And Google is being criticized, I think, both rightly and wrongly um, for sort of a degradation in the quality of their service. Part of it is they've become more commercial, um, but part of it is also the internet has become a wash in noise. It's a signal to noise ratio problem. Right. In this case, I know the EU has already gone after Alphabet, Google for specific things related to ads, for instance. But the American case, the antitrust case feels like a much more potentially uh, impactful one. What's going on with the the U.S. Department of Justice? Well, the EU certainly has had uh, a a more aggressive stance with respect to platforms in general. Uh, Google's already been handed a pretty serious loss about a year ago for much the same case that the Department of Justice is making, that they mm-hmm. are somehow um, uh, engaging in anti-competitive behavior by convincing hardware manufacturers like Apple to make their search engine the default. So when you buy an iPhone, um, Google is already right there as the, as the default search engine. Um, that's true not only on Apple devices, but also in the Safari browser, uh, in Android and Samsung products. And so uh, in the United States, the Department of Justice um, and a coalition of, I believe, 38 states and territories have decided, okay, we're going to try and um, launch a case here. It's somewhat reminiscent, since we're talking about old browsers uh, and search engines, it it is somewhat reminiscent of the old battle between Microsoft and Netscape um, when 
Microsoft was accused of anti-competitive behavior because they made uh, their Netscape, I'm sorry, not Netscape, Internet Explorer browser, mm -hmm. the default browser um, by brokering deals with a number of hardware manufacturers. And so the same argument is being applied here that Google's leveraging its, its relationship um, with a whole number of different developers and hardware manufacturers to gain a leg up on the competition. I guess there's an irony in that because part of what I mean, not just because it was a better product, if I remember correctly, but Google did take advantage of that crackdown on Microsoft and Internet Explorer to kind of enter the market, right? I mean, that sort of paved the way to some extent for what they were about to become. What's the impact then? I mean, I understand, I think a lot of listeners will understand the concept of a monopoly and we understand it when it comes to physical products. Uh, but when it comes to something like a search engine or a company that owns a very powerful search engine, not to mention YouTube and others, what is the harm being done then? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things. Um, the, the sort of standard regulator argument is that when you have a monopoly situation or a, a marketplace in which competition is not really present, like there's not robust levels of competition, that that somehow stymies innovation in, in the marketplace. Uh, and I don't know if that's true or not with respect to Google. I, I don't know how much of this court case we'll actually get to see because a lot of it's going to be shrouded in um you know, proprietary stuff, <laughs> yes, proprietary exactly. stuff. Yes, indeed. Exactly. Just, just trade secrets. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, I, but I, I'm not sure. Um, Apple, you know, has responded so far that actually the reason that we are um, using this as the default service is because it's the best service and it's a matter of quality. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not sure. I'll, I'll just leave it to the um, courts to figure out, you know, what the verdict is on that. Um but I think one of the things that I try to I try to explain to people about Google is we tend to think of them as a, as think of it as a search engine company um, with some extra suite of applications thrown in. So there's Google Maps, there's Google Docs, there's Gmail, the stuff that we know about. But what Google really is is an advertising company. Right. Um, they make a tremendous amount of money um, doing advertising. Uh, by some estimates, like if you combine them with Meta, they control you know, maybe as much as three quarters, if not more of the Canadian um, ad revenue market online. And they do that because they're very vertically integrated. So we see the public facing stuff like Google Maps and, and Gmail and, and Google search, of course, but they own almost, well, not almost, they own all of something called the ad tech stack, which is the delivery mechanism that they use to sell advertisements. So they own the demand side platform, which is something that kind of cobbled together from something you may remember called DoubleClick. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they purchased that about 15 years ago. Um, and that basically allows advertisers to bid on how to display advertisements and make money off of impressions. But they also own the auction site, um, which is something called Google Ad Exchange. And this is where buyers and sellers of advertisers, advertisements um, find each other. Uh, they also own Google um, Ad Manager, which is the management service that you use to control your sort of complex advertising campaign. They also own the the main server, the largest online server for advertisements is called AdSense. And that's what serves up advertisements. It's what allows them to track you and I across different websites and serve up targeted advertisements to us. They own this whole thing. Like it's, it's all them. It's to me reminiscent of like the old Hollywood system and the golden age of Hollywood when the motion picture companies owned everything from the studios 
to the motion picture theaters where they exhibited the films to the stars themselves through exclusive contracts. It's a highly vertical, um, highly vertically sort of concentrated system. And I think right. that's what the regulators are trying to pick apart right now. Uh, Brett, w- w- one thing that interests me here is that in some senses, uh, the argument that is being made to to sort of go after Alphabet or Google for this is that it it, it doesn't it sort of it, it quashes sort of innovation and competition that to create it to have an you want an open space and these sorts of things and while they're going to be looking at the past to try to figure out whether this behavior is in fact what the Department of Justice claims it is it'll actually have more of an impact in the future as to how what this what this space looks like as we get into new things that you know like AI and so on that 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 are a, a, but a lot more than just what Google does today sure so you know if if um regulators are successful um in in a verdict here I, you know i'm not sure whether or not we're going to see a repeat of say the modified final judgment in the united states where they took ma bell and broke the telephone system up into regional bell operating companies um I mean, you could take something like Alphabet and break out its its divisions into individual um, business units. I think the argument that the tech companies in general are making, however, is that in order to achieve innovation in these areas, you require large economies of scale. You have to be able to make, <laughs> you have to control. I mean, their argument is that you have to control three quarters of the advertising market because the margins are so slim on on selling advertisements these days that you have to be uh, highly centralized in order to have the money to invest in innovation. And, uh, you know, sometimes that the, the best intention of regulators can backfire in that regard. Right. Would a smaller Google uh, at this point, would it Google at 50 as a broken up company make more sense than Google at 25 as this monolith, the fourth, fourth <laughs> most va- valuable company in the world by market cap? I don't know. I mean, I'm using DuckDuckGo now. I just started a couple of weeks ago. They wow. only have about two to three percent of the marketplace, and I'm so far I'm pretty happy. But I will yeah. tell you, if I'm trying to look up a, a, a pizza joint or a good taqueria, I head back over to Google Maps. Yeah, and there's this- just a certain level of innovation and quality that does come with scale. Uh, you know, if Facebook only had 15 people on it, it's not going to be that valuable. There's something that we call network effects. Um, if your telephone could only call your mother-in-law, you're not going to pay a lot of money for that for that phone. But if your telephone calls everybody, uh, then it's a valuable service. And online social media, search query, uh, or search engines, they all work sort of based on that principle that the the more people and the greater the number of different types of people that are using the service expands the value of the system. So it is hard to be a mom and pop search engine in that context. I guess therein lies the challenge for both the, you know, in these, in these antitrust cases as well for regulators is that in some senses, its size is what makes it so attractive. At the same time, its size is what is being fought here. Yeah, it makes it simultaneously able to deliver quality service, but also invites the ire of, of regulators and, and for good reason. So, um, you know, there are different approaches that you can do. You can break the company up, um, as has been done before with like AT&T, Standard Oil, that kind of history of uh, regulation. Or you might try and strike some sort of um, a sort of ad hoc approach by levying fines periodically when you find a company is not in compliance with some sort of federal law. You could create something like in the US, they floated something called the Digital Consumer Protection Commission Act, which is a new regulatory body um, that's supposed to oversee these markets. Uh, you can in, 
implement government-private partnerships where, um, you know, there's sort of like a government and um, private trade association that works towards a common framework of some kind. So there's a, a whole bunch of different approach here, approaches here, and, and I don't envy the regulators that have to, you know, figure out, figure out what's the best approach. Because yeah, the, the carrot, the carrot, or the stick, or both. Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. We'll head to Ottawa instead now, where, of course, the fallout from that invite extended to a 98-year-old Ontario man who'd fought with the Nazis in the Second World War to President Zelensky's address to Parliament on Friday continued today after days of pressure and for his first time in the House of Commons since Friday, as a matter of fact, the Prime Minister apologized, not personally, as some were calling for, but formally on behalf of Parliament. On behalf of all of us in this House, I would like to present unreserved apologies for what took place on Friday and to President Zelensky and the Ukrainian delegation for the position they were put in. For all of us who were present to have unknowingly recognized this individual was a terrible mistake and a violation of the memory of those who suffered grievously at the hands of the Nazi regime. You can tell the opposition benches weren't hearing what they wanted to hear. Trudeau reiterated that Speaker Anthony Rhoda, who resigned over this issue, was solely responsible for inviting and asking members of Parliament to recognize Ukrainian veteran Yaroslav Hunka. Conservative members today called on the Prime Minister to offer a personal apology. It was his personal responsibility to continue to lead the government that has the security, intelligence and diplomatic agencies that could have and should have vetted all individuals who were present and recognized. Well, joining me now with more on this is David Mosscrop. He's a journalist and contributor to the Globe and Mail, the Washington Post, and others. He's author of Too Dumb for Democracy? Question mark. And you can find him on Substack at David Mosscrop. David, thank you so much. What? Which week? You have to be. <laughs> how many weeks? How every, long has it been? Every week. Uh, well, we had an apology today. From the prime minister, it was a carefully worded one. I don't know how happy the opposition were with it, uh, but it was high time. It was high time that uh, I, I don't. I realized that procedurally, this wasn't the prime minister's issue, at least according to him, and I think it, it makes sense. Uh, but ultimately, he is the head of government, and uh, it was perhaps time to acknowledge this. Yeah, I think it was, and I think there was an important distinction, which is that the prime minister apologized but didn't take responsibility. And uh, that's entirely reasonable. The, it, it was not the prime minister's fault that parliament welcomed a Nazi. It was the speaker's office and the speaker's fault. And the speaker has resigned. And yet it was a deeply hurtful and and for many probably re-traumatizing event. And so it was appropriate that there was an apology from Canada as Canada. So that was reasonable. But of course, what happened immediately after is question period devolved into an absolute mess as it is wont to do as sort of partisan finger pointing uh, really undid whatever elegance and dignity there was in the apology. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, if this, if there weren't so much of a backstory here, I, I think if this had happened in the first few months that they had been in office, this would be a different sort of scenario. Uh, but this is built on many, many things. There's this sort of uh, this 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 idea out there that somehow someone's asleep at the wheel here. And even if this wasn't one of those incidents, it certainly played into that narrative. Yeah, I've heard this a few times, and this seems to be there's a growing consensus 
around this government is tired narrative. And I think it's reasonable to say the least. Uh, the government has been in power for eight years, which is to say human beings have been in power, a select group of human beings for eight years, some of whom the entire time, including the prime minister and his chief of staff, uh, Katie Telford. And you lose a lot of staff over time. So the the ones who don't, uh, the ones who remain get exhausted. The ones who leave, uh, leave you with folks who are less experienced. So errors become more likely. Over time, people come to blame you more and more for things, rightfully so, because you're in power. They get tired of you. Scandals add up. They start feeling off. And in that period of time, bad things happen, like a pandemic, like an affordability crisis, like war. And people start to get a little bit ready to move on. And this is where we're at. They also stopped giving you the benefit of the doubt, as you intimated at earlier, right? Uh, Trudeau was untouchable for the better part of two, two and a half years. And then the veneer wears off. And here and here we are. Yeah. When we look back at what could have happened here, um, part of it, I think, was and I, I do think that Pierre Polly have raised an interesting point about Joe Biden's visit recently and how people would have been vetted. But it, you get the sense that this was sort of, again, uh, Zelensky's visit, I think, was at least we didn't hear about it. I'm not sure how much uh, everyone knew he was coming. He was certainly we knew he was going to the General Assembly. Uh, but the idea that this was thrown together quite quickly, the speaker obviously has a lot of independence when it comes to who they invite this or they send invites to. This was a constituent. But, you know, the idea that it could have been Googled doesn't <laughs> doesn't is not unfair. Oh, it's not unfair at all. I mean, the the speaker has. Uh, absolute authority in this case to invite whomever he or she pleases. And we want it that way, right? That you, we don't want the speaker or the house of commons or the parliamentary protective service. Or so I'm reporting directly to the government, right? We have for, you know, the better part of 900 years been struggling to get uh, independence for the commons from the executive, right? This is sort of like what the English revolution was about, <laughs> And we are heirs to that system. So you you want that. Uh, it was a failure of protocol and vetting on the part of the speaker's office. And you would have thought someone would have bothered to check. Like at some point along the line, someone would have said, done the mental math. Uh, there was a man. Okay, he fought in the Second World War. Good. Uh, he fought for Ukraine. Okay, good. Uh, against the Russians. Wait a second. You know, there's not a secret third side. And no one did that. And so that it's an absolute utter scandal. But then, you know, a, a chamber full of parliamentarians and dignitaries stood up and gave the man an ovation and no one seemed to clue in, which really speaks to the lack of history education in this country. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that emerged from this as well. Uh, you know, there has been this, needless to say, and for, for the right reasons, there has been this sort of unequivocal support for Ukraine. But part of that also ignores uh, the complicated history of that of that of that land. Forget that country, that land. Yeah, and, and I think this is where we have to reckon with global history and our history. Uh, the the fact is, uh, look, some Russians were fighting against Stalin, the vast majority, or sorry, uh, Ukrainians rather were fighting against Stalin. The vast majority of Ukrainians who fought, fought for the Red Army and fought against the Nazis. The plain fact is, if you were in that first uh, Galician division, the, the 14th SS Waffen division, you were fighting uh, for the Nazis. And for every Nazi soldier uh, there was, including those in Ukraine, there was more energy the Allies had to spend on fighting the Germans. 
and and every you know a teeny tiny bit slower longer it took to to defeat them and we've got to be comfortable with saying look uh, this was a nazi division and people who fought for it were nazis and then let's have a look at our history and figure out how these folks got there there's a long history recorded history about how these people ended up in this country post world war 2 we even criticized as a country for being a haven for nazis including uh, not a few war criminals and that's been forgotten and there's a lot of people who are about to learn it for the first time and and uh, better late than never but it's a little bit shocking we weren't talking about this before yeah do you think this is um with the apology now with the resignation of the speaker do you think this is this is it do you think it's done well it's i mean at some point it's got to be uh, i remember thinking a few days ago this isn't a two-day story this is going to take some time you've got to go through the steps of bringing it to a close there's the step of the speaker resigning that took a few days there's the step of the apology that took uh, a little bit longer there's going to be a uh, continued partisan politicization of it for a little while the conservatives are dining out on it today for sure and at some point though I would think by next week it will have faded and we'll be talking about something else. But you can believe, you can set your watch to, you can take it to the bank, that conservatives are going to press this as long as possible. And barring any new information coming out, which, by the way, isn't out of the question, but say nothing comes out, I would imagine by next week we'll be back to talking about the affordability crisis, the housing crisis, the international geopolitical crisis, climate change, wildfires, and you know, David, this this whole, I mean, this the story between India and Canada, which began more than a week ago now, again with the prime minister rising in the house uh, to point the figure at India and its connection with the murder of a Sikh activist and separatist in uh, BC earlier this year. Uh, this one also seems to have gone, I mean, at least the attacks on Canada from India uh, have been uh, become increasingly kind of bizarre, to be honest. Yeah, I, I mean, here's the thing. The Modi, the, the prime minister of India, is enjoying significant, near unanimous uh, support in India, it's a big boon for his domestic political agenda and his leadership. And that's sort of how foreign policy works, right? It's a really big jingoistic rally around the flag moment from a for a government that is national uh, nationalist in the worst sense of the word. And so uh, th- there's a huge incentive to to parlay that and to you know turn the dial up to eleven, which they've done. And then, of course, some willing jackasses on this side of the ocean are, are all too happy to pick up these absurd narratives and to uh, float ridiculous stories about where well, the prime minister's plane had cocaine on it, which is utterly and verifiably untrue. As one journalist, Evan Dyer pointed out who was, mm-hmm. who was there. Uh, and, and yet, you know, so this stuff comes across the ocean and gets filtered through here and all the wrong people uh, use it for all the wrong reasons. Meanwhile, we have a very serious issue of sovereignty, of extrajudicial murder, of uh, international norms, relations, and law, not to mention international trade and migration that is being buried beneath this uh, stupid uh, fight over over the the more nonsensical elements of the of the thing. Yeah, it really does boil down to one key question. Did India, was India involved in the murder of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil? It pretty much stops. In it. To me, it pretty much stops there. And we'll wait to see if we, I mean, clearly we haven't seen much in the way of details, but there's an investigation going on. But it sort of begins and ends there. And I think behind the scenes, you get the impression that while, you know, 
countries like the U.S. are certainly very busy courting India as a counterweight to China, that there has been some conversations going on behind the scenes that a lot of this is for, as we've seen with China over the years, This a lot of this is for public consumption. Yeah, and this is a sort of a foreign policy uh, truth uh, or, or truism, rather, that you know, foreign policy is to a large extent about domestic policy. And that sort of speaks to what I was saying earlier about Modi. It also speaks to, to how the Liberal Party, party Liberal government will perform and, and behave here. Uh, that That's always going to be a little bit true. For years, incidentally, the Trudeau government Martin Lukacs wrote a great book about this, had a kind of formula where they would try to perform well abroad and take all of that warm, fuzzy, laudatory media coverage and bring it home and dine out on it. It is sort of like Canada's back, Canada's cool, economist cover, you know, the yeah. smoking a joint. Punch and above it's our good. weight, all that stuff. Yes. Yeah, exactly. But of course, over time, that's certainly not the case now. So the flip side of this is uh, it only goes so far. And when you end up being a foreign policy lightweight or an embarrassment, which we have become, uh, then you then you end up with the fuzzy end of the lollipop. Indeed. Speaking of fuzzy ends of the lollipop, uh, the MAGA crowd in the U.S. have gone absolutely uh, bat, I won't use the rest of that word, over this uh, Travis Kelsey, I should say Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey relationship. For listeners who don't know, you might know who Taylor Swift is. Obviously, Travis Kelsey is a tight end for the Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs, the very public uh, union between these two all of a sudden, and a very, you know, a very angry reaction from some in the U.S. towards this. What did you make of it? Well, I, you know, I, I should say this first. As a Dallas Cowboys fan, oh no, <laughs> I am just oh, no. hoping that Miley Cyrus considers uh, dating Dak Prescott, right? Because we, I, I, we could use after watching the the game on the weekend or seeing the highlights of the game on the weekend, we we could use we could use that kind of ins, inspirational relationship. Um, it, it's pretty funny that. That, but not surprising that the culture wars are are such that they will extend to to every last inch of of cultural life, right? Including sport. There's just nowhere to hide, and it was in part linked to the fact that Taylor Swift was trying to register voters successfully, in, in, incidentally, right? And it was like, well, she's just trying to get a bunch of Democrats to blah, 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 blah. blah. So off we go. Uh, the NFL, for their part, loves this. They went all in. They're, they changed their their Twitter handle briefly. No, their, their, their Twitter bio to like Taylor's version. Yeah, yeah. Very well, it's, it's been a big boon for, for Travis. I mean, for his merchandise. For, for the sure, Chiefs. 400% I mean, jersey sale jump. It's, it's, re- it's any, a, it, you know. Yeah, and he played a great, and he had a great game, and she loved it. It's it's just a, a wonderful, lovely story that we should just be able to simply enjoy. That politics, especially partisan politics, turns it stupid, and it's really, really too bad. But uh, I just hope that these two make it, that they go the the distance, because if not, oh, it's going to be a rough time for Kelsey. Yeah. The, the culture wars, it, it always astounds me just how incredibly dumb they, they can get. Just, this, just utterly beyond silly. Yeah, like, like beyond imagination. A lot of this is, is, of course, fueled by by social media. I think most people out there probably see it the way that you were just talking about it as sort of this kind of cool uh, relationship. And hopefully it, it lasts because it's always tough when, uh, when people with such high profile get together. Uh, David, thank you so much as always. Entirely my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
Let's stay in Ottawa this half hour because there was a really interesting decision today from the Supreme Court of Canada, a unanimous decision, which is not rare, but it certainly signifies something about the case that was in front of them. The Supreme Court has said that a provision of federal immigration law that can be used to bar people on security grounds for engaging in violence is only admissible when there's a clear connection to national security. Uh, This decision came down today. It's a ruling on two cases that began with administrative rulings under a section of the Immigration Refugee Protection Act. Uh, Here is what it was. It was two different people who were being denied or deported in the process of being deported. One was um, after a barroom altercation. The other was involving allegations of intimate partner violence um, with these two different applicants. Both were found inadmissible to Canada, and it turned out in the long run that both these cases had been dropped. Now, this isn't about reflecting on the acts of people, the you know individual acts in these cases. It's about rules and what are the rules for allowing, for not allowing people, or for kicking people out of the country, and how solid are they? And what the Supreme Court said today was essentially, when it comes to national security. It has to be about national security. You can't use this as a blanket way of sort of getting, you know, kicking other people out of the country who you may think may or may not have done something wrong. Um, now, this will be controversial because these things always are. Uh, so before you start reading a lot about it, because it was just released today, we thought we'd get you some insight on it to better understand what exactly was decided and why. Because when the Supreme Court uh, renders a unanimous decision, it means the issue in law was indisputably a problem. And now they're going to try to clarify it. Sherry Aiken is an associate professor at uh, of law at Queen's University. She has expertise in immigration and refugee law. She's appeared before the Supreme Court, the said Supreme Court of Canada, numerous times in precedent-setting immigration cases. And she joins me now from Kingston. Uh, Sherry, thank you so much. No problem. This one is, I mean, this has been a long-standing issue, I know. Uh, but what was the Supreme Court asked to weigh today uh, when it comes to these designations? The Supreme Court was asked to weigh whether it was reasonable to use provisions in Canadian immigration law to render foreign nationals, so people who don't have permanent resident status, inadmissible because of um, potentially violent acts they have participated in under the rubric of security inadmissibility. So maybe to make that a little bit more accessible, what I can explain is as follows. There's a provision in the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act that um, identifies a whole list of national security related activities that if um, uh, there are reasonable grounds to believe you've been engaged in any of them or somehow connected to any of them, you'll be deemed inadmissible to Canada and potentially deported. And this applies to you no matter how long you've lived in the country no matter whether you are a refugee fearing persecution or not. And generally speaking, the, the, the itemized list of activities that the security inadmissibility provision covers are things like terrorism, espionage, subversion, and a sort of general catch-all of acts that are contrary to the security of Canada right, or acts that uh, threaten the security of Canada. So all of the sort of subdivided elements of this uh, provision are focused on national security. There's one final clause that refers to acts of violence. 
that uh, threaten public safety uh, in the lives of Canadians. It's sort of framed very generally. Up until fairly recently, um, uh, that provision was only used in relation to people who were involved in really bad stuff like terrorism, espionage, et cetera, like things that threatened national security that had a nexus to the national security purpose of this provision. But as things unfolded um, over uh, the last many years, um, increasingly uh, foreign nationals were finding themselves subject to inadmissibility proceedings um, using this provision, even when there, the acts in question had no connection to national security. So in the case of the two individuals um, uh, that um, uh, are addressed in today's Supreme Court ruling, um, neither one of them had criminal convictions, which meant that they couldn't be deemed inadmissible pursuant to the serious criminality provisions of immigration law because they didn't have convictions. And um, the only other option under serious criminality would be if the acts they committed were outside of Canada and had attracted a potential punishment of 10 years or more of imprisonment. Neither one of those conditions applied. So in an attempt on the part of government officials to find a way to put these individuals into deportation stream, they used the security provision. Right, which I guess, in as far as the Supreme Court was concerned today, unanimously uh, violated not only the letter of this, but the spirit of it as well. Absolutely. The Supreme Court of Canada, I think, quite definitively put a stop to this overreach. And overreach it was. There's no question that um, uh, the government has at its disposal a very large toolkit with which to um, strip people of permanent resident status or deny them permanent resident status in circumstances when their conduct reaches a certain threshold, right? Whether it be related to criminality or security. The government has a big toolkit to deal with that. But in the case of these two individuals and potentially many others like them, the acts in question didn't rise to that threshold. These acts were not anything to do with national security. There was no nexus to national security at all. And the acts of violence alleged in the two cases um, didn't meet the requirements for inadmissibility. So, you know, and when we think about it, these are people's lives at stake, right? Um, so the repercussions are significant. And many uh, people in similar situations as these two individuals were increasingly finding themselves caught up in this overreach uh, effort. And so I think it's it's a, a good, good decision by the court to rein that in. Right. And again, just so listeners are clear, we're not weighing the good or bad of the acts themselves that these individuals may or may not have been accused of. I think both uh, ultimately were, 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 were not convicted. Uh, but this is about consistency and rules. Absolutely. It's rule of law. Right. So in, in an ordinary interpretation, an ordinary plain meeting of the statute in question, it really defies understanding how um, the federal court of appeal suggested 
that there was no nexus to national security required by this particular provision in a, in a whole list of itemized activities um, that are all about security inadmissibility. And then all of a sudden, any act, you know, a barroom fight, a schoolyard squabble, um, I mean, what's the what's the metric to be applied? It, it was so potentially overbroad um, and catching such a wide net of potential conduct. Um, it was really worrisome and effectively rendered the permanent in permanent residence very, very unstable. Because and random, anybody and random, could potentially, yeah. exactly, anybody could potentially find themselves arbitrarily caught up in this uh, uh, provision and slated for removal to the uh, from the country. Sherry, clearly people will look at this and, and even some of the, you know, there, I think one of the two individuals who was brought up in this case had been accused of a domestic violence issue. I mean, again, there are, you know, this is not about judging necessarily the acts themselves or the acts that may or may not have been committed. Uh, there are other clauses within immigration rules that ha- that take care of this sort of stuff, I believe. Yes, Um uh, there's both uh, provisions uh, relating to criminality as well as serious criminality. And either one of those uh, sets of provisions uh, are enough to both deny someone admission to Canada um, as well as uh, slate someone for deportation should they already be here. Um, what happens if they're already a permanent resident is that um, their permanent residence is effectively stripped. Um, in both cases, though, a conviction is required, right? So it's not just an allegation, it's a conviction, or it's an act that was committed outside of Canada that attracts a significant sentence, right? 10 years or more um, uh, is the case for serious criminality, for example. Um, but that effectively covers off the concerns, right? Um, uh, you know, if somebody is charged with something and they're not yet convicted, well, uh, the minister still has the power to watch what's going on. And should a conviction um, end up being lodged against them, then inadmissibility procedures can be invoked. But in in the case of, for example, Mr. Mason, the charges were dropped, right? So it's absolutely egregious that in circumstances like that, where not only is there no conviction, you know, there's, it's it just, it's as if it never happened, but nevertheless, um, he faced the very severe consequence of being threatened with removal. Right. So the shadow of suspicion was enough in certain cases. And yeah. I imagine it was quite arbitrary because it sounds like it was quite arbitrary uh, in these cases. I mean, who who would fall into that net and who wouldn't would have been pretty random, I would suspect. Indeed. And that's the concern. It's the overreach on the part of the government um, with a sort of enforcement mindset to find, you know, everyone... <laughs> potentially guilty until proven otherwise. And I I think that's a serious concern. Um, These cases are not uh, isolated. Um, The examples of overreach in relation to even other provisions of Section 34 of the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, which is what we're speaking of, are abundant. Um, I can give you many other examples, not of this particular provision, but of overreach in relation to people who've been deemed inadmissible because of constituting a threat to national security more generally. Um, right. 
So it's been a long-standing problem. I know you've probably answered these questions many times in the past, but for people who look at this and go, well, wait a second, you know, you know, coming to this country is a privilege. Therefore, if there even is a shadow of suspicion about your behavior, well, maybe you should be put to the back of the line or someone else should be let in instead of you. I mean, these are the kinds of arguments. And obviously, if the government's doing stuff like this, it's because they're feeling a certain amount of pressure to do this. Um, what do you say then in that case? I mean, to me, it's a question of of consistency and the rule of law. I mean, if you don't follow those rules, then what are the rules for? Uh, but there is obviously always isolated cases where the government comes under a lot of fire for certain people who, who come to the country who may not have the most savory past. Right. Well, first of all, I, I think I would remind your listeners that in these two cases, there were people who already had come to Canada mm-hmm. and had been here a significant amount of time. And I I think one has to look at those cases very differently than um, the screening that's done up front in the case of prospective immigrants who are outside of the country asking to come in, right? Um, I think as soon as we look at um, the situation of people who are already here, um, I think the Canadian public actually could understand that there's a different lens that needs to be applied. Um, That's for one, because you know, you're talking about significant rights that have already accrued to the individuals because they're here. Um, But also in terms of the screening overseas, as you said, this is a rule of law question, right? Um, It's very important that on the front line, immigration officers making decisions make those decisions in, in a manner that's consistent, not just with our constitution, but also the international legal requirements that Canada has um, uh, signed on to and uh, agreed to comply with. And that engages the Refugee Convention, right? Now, as it happens, these two individuals weren't um, asylum seekers or refugee claimants, but the fact is these provisions could be used against refugee claimants as well uh, to deny them admission under a, a government resettlement program, um, or to deny them protection once they're already here. So again, we are looking at the broad consequences of this overreach and the fact that they weren't warranted in the circumstances. There were other tools to deal with any genuine problems that the government may be worried about. So we have uh, some much needed clarity today, at least on this matter. Indeed. Well, Sherry, thank you so much for your uh, for your insight on this and for explaining it. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. What is the coolest animal that you've ever seen? Coolest creature, I should say, because it could be just about anything, right? Um, Catherine in Surrey says the Tasmanian devil on Looney Tunes. I, they, they exist in the real. I've never, been, I've never been to Australia, so I've never seen a real Tasmanian devil. Maybe at the zoo, but I can't remember if I have or not. I think the coolest animal I ever saw, I'll have to thank my wife for this one, is a whale shark because they're, they're awesome. Whale sharks are absolutely incredible looking, massive, spotty, giant, school bus size things. Uh, Just incredible. Well, here's one that might be right up on that list. Rarely seen, lives in the depths, the deepest living, where, you know, of, of all the octopus out there, it lives the deepest. It's called a Dumbo octopus. And even a team of seasoned researchers on an expedition vessel who spotted one on camera with, a, with an underwater camera deep on the on the ocean floor reacted like it was, you know, the greatest thing they'd ever seen. Have a listen. Oh, oh what's this? Dumbo. Is it a... Wait, no way, really? Yeah. yeah. No way. What? Dumbo. 
Shark and a Dumbo together? Wait, this is too much for me. I don't need the lottery. I don't need the Happy World Ocean Day. That's a gorgeous uh, one. Yeah. Wow. Lasers? Yeah, turn off the lasers. I'm so happy right now. Look at that color. Probably about 40 centimeters. 45. <laughs> 45. 45. <laughs> what? That is amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, these are, these are, this isn't kids at the zoo or at the aquarium. This is researchers who spotted this Dumbo octopus um, two kilometers below the surface of the Pacific Ocean uh, near the Hawaiian Islands, not far off the coast of, of Honolulu. They're on a, the octopus was seen uh, on an unnamed seamount in the Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument, northwest of Hawaii. Now, Dumbo octopuses live at extreme depths, according to National Geographic, and are the deepest living octopuses known. They can live at depths of up to 13,000 feet, can you imagine? They are called Dumbo because they have two large fins that protrude like ears, meaning, of course, they look like the elephant, and they use those to propel. That's how they swim. They're blobby and gelatinous, which gives them kind of an alien look. They're semi-translucent. They're really quite remarkable looking. If you Google, here we are celebrating Google, I'm going to say Google, if you search for a Dumbo octopus, you will get to look at one. I highly recommend it if you have a, a way of doing that right now. They eat snails, worms, and other stuff that lives near or on the ocean floor. It was one of six Dumbos that the Ocean Exploration Trust spotted during their latest 27-day expedition to that area of the Pacific. Uh, they're gathering data urgently needed to address local management and science needs. Of course, you know, the ocean floor, especially in that part of the world, or anywhere for that matter, many parts of the world, is just not that well known, right? We don't know much about it at all. So this is one of those many... Uh, expeditions out there trying to give us a better understanding of what lies and lurks in the deep. Daniel Wagner is the Ocean Exploration Trust's chief scientist and expedition co-lead. Jaina Galvez is the expedition's video engineering intern, and she was the one controlling the underwater cameras that captured the gumbo octopus in all its translucent glory. They're somewhere in the Pacific tonight, and they join us to tell us all about it. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Uh, Jada, you were the one operating the camera, and I gather, do we hear from you in that video? Is that is that is that you? Who sounds like you? It's Christmas Day, all and and many other holidays wrapped up into one. <laughs> no, that's funny. My whole family thought that was me too, but I was in so much shock that I just didn't say anything. <laughs> oh wow! Tell me that so because I didn't speak in that video. Oh, do you not speak? So you were just you were in stunned silence. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about that, because, I mean, I gather part of your work is you do spend a lot of time sort of staring at the dark bottom of the you know ocean floor, looking for things to pop in and out. I'm sure you see lots of stuff. But what was it like when when this creature suddenly appeared? Yeah, well, um, it's always been my dream to film a Dumbo octopus. So when I saw it floating in from the corner of the screen, like I said, I kind of just went silent and my jaw was on the floor. It was a pretty incredible moment. Yeah, your dream because I know I'll be honest. I don't think I'd ever heard of them until until this whole story came out. Uh, how, you you've been you've known about this creature for a very long time, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've just been following um, OET a long time before I even got the internship, and that's how I've heard about them in the first place. And I've always dreamed about being here and filming one. So it's right. pretty cool that I get to do it now. Was it everything you hoped it would be? Oh, absolutely, and more. Daniel, tell me a bit about, about about this Dumbo octopus. Just, I mean, because it's been talked about so much, but it was, in fact, quite quite the sight. It's quite the sight. 
Oh, absolutely. So just to put this into context, so we are uh, on a 27-day expedition to explore the northwestern and most remote part of the Hawaiian archipelago. We were actually 1,400 miles away from Honolulu. Uh, exploring a seamount, an underwater mountain that actually had never been mapped, and we uh, used the ship to map it. Uh, and then the day after, we deployed a remotely operated vehicle, which is basically a submersible that is uh, steered here from the ship. Uh, and we're exploring this place for the very first time. It had never been explored. Uh, and then early in this dive, came across some really incredible landscapes in terms of just diversity of organisms. And then this wonderful octopus came across. Now, this group of octopuses, uh, the, the serrate or winged octopuses are, are the deepest known octopuses. There's over a dozen of species of these, uh, but we know very, very little about them because most of them are found in very, very deep waters, uh, depths about 1,000 to 7,000 meters. Uh, and in, in most cases, we know virtually nothing about you know, uh, how they reproduce, how they feed. Uh, and so it's a rare, rare privilege to get to see them. The octopus hung out with a submersible for a while, and we actually saw a few others on this expedition. And it just adds so much more pivotal information about our understanding about the deep sea. Uh, most people don't realize that the biggest part of our planet is the deep sea, and the biggest part of us, uh, this, the deep sea is unexplored and unknown. Uh, and so it's a lot of adding a lot of information about our own planet. Yeah. And this is a majestic looking, I mean, it, it, it's such a, I, I suppose some people may think it's a bit spooky because it is, it's milk white, right? And it sort of uses, it has Dumbo ear. Well, Dumbo, they're not ears, but that's how it propels itself. But what a great looking creature. What a, what a great looking creature to, to have seen down there. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's always kind of remarkable in terms of uh, the, the shapes and diversity of life that we see on the deep sea. Uh, some of them look very different than what you're expecting to see in, in shallower waters or in terrestrial ecosystems. Others look more alien-like. Uh, this Dumbo octopus is a very uh, cute and cuddly creature, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's really helps us understand about, yeah, how much, how much there is and how much extraordinary life there is. Daniel, are they solo? I mean, it, it was it was on its own. Are they sort of? I guess octopus in general are. I mean, sometimes they're not. There, there are they. They at times will congregate, but often they just do their own thing. They don't much love each other at times. I gather. So yeah, excellent questions. I mean, the the short answer is they still don't know virtually nothing about their just general life history and how they go about. Uh, now, there's obviously many, many different uh, species of octopuses and uh, uh, different species. A few years ago, we came across as a remarkable observation when we were exploring a seamount on a different part of the Pacific, when we came across for the first time a, a massive uh, uh, mating, uh, sorry, a, a massing a brooding aggregation where right. a lot of these octopuses were hanging out together, uh, thousands of them. Uh, but you know, th these, these observations are so rare. We've only imaged less than 1% of the surface of the seafloor so where we've actually gotten good video uh captures and in most cases we go there and we get like split seconds of, of taking that in video and then we move on so it's so rare to get to go see there and then when you see these these creatures it's, it's just such a privilege and uh, it adds so much uh new information yeah and jana this one this one hung out it, it looked like it was kind of just putting on a show for the camera so to speak i know that's not true but you could be forgiven for thinking so yeah, no, absolutely. It just glided so effortlessly through the water and we were able to stay probably longer than we were supposed to. But um, yeah, our navigator was like, guys, it's time to go. And we're all like, hold on, <laughs> wait. Um, yeah, it's amazing how they don't just swim away. They just glide 
so smoothly through the water and let us watch them. What an exciting time for you two, Jaina. Where are you now, by the way? Because I get the impression you're at sea, which I think you are. Yeah, we still are at sea. Um, last night, we left Papahanao Mokuakea, mm -hmm. and we're going back to port um, in Honolulu, Hawaii. Yeah, what? And, and so, what, so around you now, it's just ocean, just just sort of that that vast. I mean, it, we call it nothingness, but it's there's a lot of something there, but it's just below the surface. <laughs> yeah, for and, a month uh, straight, it's just been nothing but ocean, but it's been amazing. What's it like to have to to sort of? I mean, I gather part of it is can be. I, I don't want to use the word monotonous because, but you're you're sort of keeping your eye trained on on something that mightn't be. There mightn't be a lot of activity with with what you're looking at, and all of a sudden, there is something that you've been looking for. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it can be a lot of nothing for a long time. And then all of a sudden you just see the coolest thing ever. Um, that goes for the surface too. Like sometimes we're just, all of us are looking over the edge and then there's a shark. Wow. You know? um, but yeah, it's such a great moment when it's just hours of nothing or maybe just rocks. And then all of a sudden you just see the greatest creature ever. I, I, and you described the Dumbo as the one you wanted to see. Was that the highlight? Has that been the highlight of your of your many days at sea? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. We've seen some really great things, though. Um, one of the sea mounts, we just saw this endless coral forest, and that was also pretty amazing. So I think just everything we saw was so special. Yeah, just a few things to add. So th this this area that we were exploring on this expedition is uh, the Papahanamu Korkia Marine National Monument. It's one of the largest marine protected areas in the world, the, the, the biggest one in the United States that has been protected for its extraordinary natural and cultural significance. Uh, and this expedition was one of the first basically to explore the most remote and under-surveyed portion of this monument. Uh, and so we designed this mission to basically go to some of the places where we expected to find some extraordinary things. And, and we've really blown away in terms of what we found, as Jana mentioned, these forests of pink corals, Damba octopuses, uh, other places where in all directions you could see is, is uh, just corals and sponges and life. Uh, and then another thing that was really uh, remarkable and extraordinary about this expedition is that we uh, did some of the first visual surveys of some really historically significant uh, wrecks associated with the Battle of Midway, uh, documented wow. for the first time. Uh, one of uh, aircraft carrier uh, Japanese, uh, the, the Akagi, and, and uh, just uh, underlines that uh, a lot of these places where they're out of sight and out of mind. Uh, now we're here, basically, if you look at a map, we're in the middle of the Pacific, surrounded by ocean. We never really saw land at any point. Uh, but still, there's a lot of uh, significance of these sites, cultural significance, historic significance, and natural significance. Uh, and it's really important to understand for, for folks that you now while many of these ecosystems or places are far removed from human population centers, they're still still important. Uh, and certainly here in Hawaii, where we're Native Hawaiians and uh, have really cherished these places and hold them sacred for millennia. Uh, and, and so it's, it's really remarkable to get to see some of these places for the first time and in, in modern time and uh yeah it's been it's been a really rewarding experience yeah and remarkable that that these days thanks to technology so many of the rest of us can kind of watch along with you daniel wagner's with us he's ocean exploration trust's chief scientist he's the co-lead for an expedition that they're in the midst of it's wrapping up but they've been uh out uh, off the coast of hawaii now for for several weeks uh jana galvez is the video engineering intern for the expedition she was controlling the rov cameras that captured that dumbo octopus this is of course about a lot more this was the highlight for some and for many i believe but uh there's a lot more going on as 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 uh, daniel's been explaining this is about a lot more than just capturing a rarely seen creature near the bottom of the sea when we come back we'll just quickly talk a bit more about uh, some of the significance of this kind of work broadly. That's next.
Daniel, this is, I mean, you've talked about it already, but it's remarkable how much we know about space at times and how little we know about what's under, under the water. Uh, but there you are doing this kind of work. It's very, what, what was sort of the mission here? You, you explained that you were looking at areas that had not been uh, properly mapped before, uh, but this is work that's going on around the world and it's really interesting stuff. We seem to see so much interesting stuff coming from the deep sea of late. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Ben. And and so the, the I think the the one thing that is important to realize, and, and most people are not aware of this, that the biggest part of our planet has actually never been surveyed. You know, most people realize that seventy percent of our planet is covered by oceans, but most people probably never think about you know what's down there, and uh, and realize that the biggest part of our ocean is actually really deep. The average depth of the ocean is over two miles deep, over three thousand meters deep, uh, and it's 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 really remarkable. We've only mapped about 20% of the seafloor. We've only imaged with high-resolution cameras and vehicles much less than a fraction of a percent. So the biggest part of this is explored. And uh, and that really is uh, hampering our, a lot of our ability to properly manage uh, our planet. Uh, now, if you want to understand you know, impacts of climate change or how nutrient cycles and a lot of these kind of global processes happen, uh, you can't really uh, put together like good models if you don't understand you know, 80% percent of the ocean or 99 percent of the ocean however you want to slice it uh, and that's part of our mission is really to go and add information about these places that we know very little about uh, and the other part of our mission is is to share that broadly uh, so one of the wonderful things about our program is that we use telepresence expo- uh, telepresence technology to share the images and video in real time uh, so as we were watching these wonderful uh, images of the Dumbo octopus, uh, people from around the world were watching live on our website, on YouTube and various other channels. And that's just a really powerful way to kind of inspire and engage broad audiences, as well as scientists that help on every one of our missions from around the world. Right. And Jada, you said that's how you sort of got involved, because you would watch you would watch along, right? Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, before I got the internship, I followed Ocean Exploration Trust and the Nautilus for a long time. So it's great that I get to be here now. I, I gather you have internet. Obviously, you have access to uh, just to, to all that's going on. Have you been surprised by just how many people are talking about this Dumbo octopus that you happen to come upon? <laughs> yeah, no, it's crazy because it's always, like I said, it's always been my dream to film one. Um, and I'm honored that we saw six um, on my watch and that everybody is freaking out in the same way that I freaked out. It's pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, I'll let you enjoy the moment. Uh, uh, Daniel and Jaina, thank you so much for your time and for sharing that story with me. I appreciate it. Thank Thank you. He is one of the most successful Canadian country acts of this century. With 11 studio albums to his credit, Australian-born, Alberta-raised, Gord Bamford is now... Uh, has no fewer, by the way, than 26 Canadian Country Music Association Awards. 26, including Album of the Year, Single of the Year, Male Artist of the Year. That's a lot of wins. A bunch of Juno nominations under his belt as well. He's out on tour right now promoting his latest album or release called Fire It Up. Uh, his Canadian Dirt Tour, Canadian Dirt Tour, is named after one of the hits on that particular record. Part two, the fall edition of this tour started on September 8th in Marwayne, Alberta. It continues through to November 24th, where it winds up not too, too far from where he lives uh, in Calgary, Alberta. 
Um, and he's playing just a ton of venues in between. It's a busy, busy tour schedule. And here's why. It's a tour with a difference. Bamford has always been big on giving back to the community. Uh, through his foundation, he's raised more than $5 million for Canadian children and youth over the years. And during this tour, get this, he's partnering, partnering with local organizations across the country so they can raise money off his stop in their communities, communities big and small. So he entertains... He draws the crowd. He dedicates that time to good causes. Uh, they split the door. There's a whole bunch of different ways uh, that they go about doing this. But ultimately what happens is they get to raise money for a good cause and be entertained at the same time. Uh, his small town tour, last I saw, has raised nearly $400,000 for local community service groups. So he's taking a break. He's back at home uh, in central Alberta near Bashaw, and he joins me now from there. Uh, Gord, thank you so much for your time tonight. Yeah, my pleasure. This is a big tour. I mean, I was looking at your tour schedule, and it's pretty intense. Yeah, it has been since February, and uh, in between there, heading to Australia on dates, but uh, no complaints here. You know, we had enough time off, so we're, uh, we're it's a, it's pretty busy, though. I mean, it's almost a little too much, but we'll get through it. We're We're on the tail end of the year, so that's good. Yeah, and you still manage to get home for big occasions. You're mentioning uh, it's a big birthday in your family, and you do manage to get back for those things. So there's some flexibility in there, at least. Yeah, you know, I miss a lot of birthdays in, in the family, but uh, that was one reason I come home. We, we we got a bunch of stuff going on here. I got a hockey team now that I have ownership in, and right. that season started. But yeah, my daughter's 17 today, our oldest daughter, Paisley, and uh, she's uh, she's happy today, so it's good. It reminds me, I mean, when your first albums came in, we're going more than 20 years now, right? So things, how life has changed so much since your first yeah. records came out. I mean, music's yeah. been there the whole time, but what a journey. Yeah, actually the first, the first song, I was looking at that the other day because we we're planning on an anniversary thing, but the first song that uh, I ever put out was a result of a contest called Search for the Stars years ago. Right. was in 94, so like actually next year's 30 years, you know, wow. with the first ever song, so we're planning to do a bit of a, best of type thing on vinyl i think in a and then a big tour in 2025 so yeah it's kind of crazy man to think about you know where well first of all how fast time flies by but second of all how you know how it's all went down you know 30 years ago it's kind of crazy how is it listen because i was watching an interview that you've done about trying to make each album better than the last one i know that's a real that's a big challenge right how is it listening to that to that early, early stuff now, because those were some early hits and yeah. your big hits would have come in, I guess, 2013 was your first num big number one. But uh, what's it like listening to the older stuff now? Do you love it? Yeah. I mean, the first one I was talking about, I wouldn't want to listen to again, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's neat to see the m m growth, I guess, as a, you know, as a songwriter and as a performer and as a vocalist, like you just, you know, I've tried to get stronger and stronger, you know, and then it's, uh, um, and that's why I talk about the albums are so tough to, to try and make them better than the next one, you know, but I think for us, it's just been basic from day one, you know, um, keep it simple, meat and potato type stuff. And, you know, the um, music trends, so you call it, have changed over time, you know, sonically for sure. Um, radio's changed, obviously streaming now, what's going on. So I've tried to, you know, there was, I've departed a little bit from what I was, you know, I guess good at and it kind of worked, but it was like, I just want to do music that I love and, and it's simple stuff that people can relate to. And if it has a steel and a fiddle in it, that's just the way it is. 
Yeah, I, I saw someone commenting, I think, on your YouTube page, one to one, I think it was Canadian Dirt, but it might have been an earlier song, saying that they loved what you did because it reminded them of what country music sounded like, as opposed yeah. to like sort of following all these trends. I mean, I, I know you were in Nashville for quite a while. You yeah. know how how just how quick the music moves there, but sort of looking back, looking back for something that feels a bit more grounded in, in a familiar sound. Yeah, I think like, yeah, we went to Nashville for a few years, loved it, you know, loved living there, our family, but. You know, so hard to break into the American market, being Canadian, you know, and um, they're good people and all. But I think a lot of people, they try it, you know, just think it's where you got to go. But, you know, I've been able to make a heck of a living right here in Canada. And, and it's, uh, it's a great market for music, country, any type of music. Uh, the fans are passionate. And it's, it's a lot of work already here, you know. So I, I just decided that this is where I want to be, you know, raise my family and, and I want to dedicate my my time and music to to here, and everything else will be a bonus. And we've been able to, you know, branch into Australia now, which is starting to really take off, which is another awesome market, a lot like Canada. And then we go usually once a year we get to go to Europe. It's kind of a paid vacation, so there's nothing better than that. So it's 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 uh, it's a blessing to be doing it, and it's uh, it's plenty of work right here. And, and we still get people going like, "Why aren't you in the states?" I'm like, "Well." I get, you know, I just don't have any desire at this point to to do any, anything more than what we're doing. And with all the social media stuff and so on, and the way that uh, production values have changed and so on, you don't really have to be. I mean, it might help, but you don't really have oh. to be there anymore, right? Oh, I mean, I wrote Canadian Dirt in my office on Zoom. I mean, right. it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. things you had to, right? So it's um, technology has really, really come, you know, from not early not the mid nineties to where we're at now. I mean, it's and and you know has not just artists, but, you know, producers and, and engineers and Canadians, like we're on, we can compete with anything in the world now. It's, and that was kind of the, the word out back then. And they might've been right that, you know, we just weren't making records that sounded like big American records. And, you know, I've made a lot of my records down there. I split a lot of time and, but now, I mean, we're just, just doing pretty much everything here in Canada and we, and we can. And I think uh, we're proving that as Canadians in every genre. So it's uh, it's great. It's been interesting watching sort of the evolution of your music from uh, 10 years ago, the time in Nashville and now back, and sort of how the songwriting a little bit has evolved. It's it's interesting to see how you write about Canada in a way that, in a, in a, proud, in a proud way, that we don't often see. We don't often see that in music, in any kind of music, for that matter. Canadians spent, when I was growing up in the 80s, you know, so many Canadian artists, like the biggest compliment was, well, you don't sound Canadian. Right. Yeah. Uh, and now that's not universally true, it, it was, but often, you know, that was the way. And people, you know, think it's a compliment, but it's like, to me, it's like, you know, be proud of where you come from. Like, it's, we should. I mean, we shouldn't sound any different than anybody else. I mean, I mean, Stomp and Tom, you know, sang about Canada. Ian Tyson sang about our country. You know, I mean, it's, Gordon and Lightfoot. I was born in Australia, yeah. you know, I, 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 I was born there and mm -hmm. I left there when I was five. My mom's from Canada. And, so I do have a dual citizenship, but you know, I'm I'm proud to be from Canada and I'm proud to be from I live in Alberta. We love it here and and, and everybody's welcome anywhere. So it's uh I just try to keep keep doing what I do in this country because to be honest with you, if it wasn't for this country, I wouldn't even be talking to you right now. So it's uh it's just what I do.
Yeah, the strongest beer and the greatest show on earth, right? That's the yeah. uh, <laughs> it's right. uh, it's a good one. Tell me about the foundation because I was watching you receive um an award back I think it was in 2019. You did a lot of talking about giving back and how important it is and how much you credit with how much you hope that people get to follow the same path that you have. Uh tell me a bit about that work because obviously it's it's as important is it's as important in some ways as the yeah. music itself. And you probably probably at this point even more important, you know, it's uh it's kind of a beast of its own, you know, the Gord Bamford Foundation that started 16 years ago and and it was just to try and do something positive, you know, for people that needed help. And we started a little golf tournament that raised 75 grand that year. And it grew into this incredible event that, uh, you know, supported by Olympians and celebrities and singers and, you know, um, 95% return rates 16 years later, you know. Wow. So it's, it's an event that, I mean, there's lots of golf tournament fundraisers out there, but they can't do what we do because we can lean on our friends and and we can have an evening of, it's not so much about the golf the next day, really. It's more about a, a great evening of music and collaboration of friends and um, people just love it and, and they can bring clients to it and, and be a part of it. It's never really been advertised. It's all just been, you know, word of mouth and um, it's been fantastic. And then we got a, you know, a great committee of volunteers and, you know, one person that runs the foundation on a on a paid position, and and all our money goes back out out to people. Tell me about the Australia thing because it, I, I was reading an article about Roy Hadley, who's a really well known DJ Ray, yeah. in, in Ray, Oz, Ray, yeah. and, he, and he love he loves your stuff. I was wondering yeah. when you go there because they do the Australians do what we do, which we always say, oh yeah, he's also Canadian. Oh yeah, he's also Canadian. So when I was reading the Australian articles, you're always Australian Canadian yeah. artist. Yeah. So I thought that was cool. Yeah, yeah Ray has a, probably the biggest radio show right across Australia. And and I met Ray just one time. He, he called all the, you know, the big grand final Aussie football games and stuff. Mm. And he just, you know, took a liking to me and and him and I just hit it off. And he he pretty much put me on the map over there and continues to do that. And uh, and then I I got involved with a record label there, ABC with, with Universal at the time. Now just ABC. And, and then I got onto a management company, Steve White Management, um, just by making a phone call and in a meeting. Wow. And he manages a guy by the name of Lee Kernigan, the Wolf Brothers, and they're big acts over there, you know, compared to what we would be here. And and we worked, we didn't get nine years working together. And then the pandemic hit and things were starting to grow. And and then uh, this last trip, we went over there. And of course, it's expensive to get there. I mean, take the band and it's like, okay, this is, I'm going to try this one more time. And yeah, it was just went off the charts. So it's, uh, it's a market that <clears throat> next year we'll dedicate a lot of time to um we're touring hard this year in canada we'll probably probably won't be back out until 2025 but it's a great market and uh it, they are we didn't go into australia going hey this guy's an aussie you should like him we kind of approached it in a different way but now they they believe i'm i'm one of theirs they just sound a little different so it's yeah it's, uh, i was gonna say they're really waiting good. for an aussie yeah. accent they're gonna be disappointed you know breakfast beer was a massive hit over there that kind right. of things off and and i you know when if you've ever been to australia you can understand why but it was yeah. uh the big song yeah they might argue with our strongest beer one they might argue, yeah. argue, they might argue <laughs> yeah. with some of the things we lay a claim to yeah yeah uh, tell me what this tour i mean the uh, the canadian dirt tours is obviously i mean this has been a, another big album fired up's been another big album um but you're you're just about everywhere now you're heading into doing a lot of ontario a bit of the maritimes and then, and then you're back closer to home uh in a couple of months yeah we just uh you know had this plan you know whenever we were get to get out of that pandemic you know which i don't like talking about we always had this plan and it was just basically 
because I'm so turnkey with everything I have. With, I mean, we have our own bus, we have our own production, we have everything's just we can bring it right. So we decided to put together this template of um, opportunities for anybody really fairs, small towns, ag societies, rotary clubs, uh, sports teams, whatever it took to wow. get into their communities and then give them a couple options, whether they get a discounted price or whether we simply just partner with them and play for the door and give them back a sellout bonus and let them make their food and beverage. And I mean, they've all kind of taken that obviously, but it just took off like wildfire. And literally there's, I think we got a hundred towns on a waiting list right now. And then, you know, go back to these towns. So we kind of built our own, touring platform with communities where, I mean, these communities are raising 10 to $20,000 a night with zero risk. You know, they don't have to pay me. So I go in there and then we, we have a setup where we, we have people on the ground that help them run the event and, and do all that. And all that stuff's on our website, gordbanford.com, small town opportunities. And yeah, I was, yeah, we just kind of went out and it didn't matter if it was a little town in the middle of nowhere or a little hall or a dive bar or a small town arena or, a festival like we were going to go play it and uh that's what we did and then it's just kind of taken a life of its own yeah because you're doing everything from the midland culture center in midland ontario to the harborfront theater in somerset pi which sounds like a kind of different and the casino in moncton so it's you know, yeah. all right across the board it's fast we just played two small town arenas last week in ontario and i mean it was probably two of the best shows i've ever played like it was they were just uh, time of their must life. love to see you i mean when a, when a band comes to town that people everyone knows i mean it's such a big deal right it's such a yeah, big deal Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, gordbanford.com for any tickets you guys are looking for. They're selling fast, so make sure you go grab them, and we want to see you there. Thank you. 